Kia ora koutou. This morning I arrived in town, parked my car and walked past a bird, medium sized, black with dark green and blue on its chest. Tui, black bird, it didn't have white like a tui, but the colour, I'm uncertain which it was. It had a long piece of hay, about three times longer than its own body. I watched it as it took the piece of hay and flew over to the next building and up, landed on the scaffolding close to the roof. Where is its nest, I wondered. And then it flew back in my direction above me, landed on the wall, strange route to take, I thought. And then with one swift move, it sort of bounced off the wall and ducked down and plunged the piece of hay into a round hole in the brick wall. It looked like perhaps that hole had been used for piping previously and there wasn't much room there. It hardly got its head in, I thought. And with the hay sticking out of the wall by probably 30 centimetres, the tui then flew off. Strange place for a nest. It didn't seem much to work with, but maybe for the tui it was enough. Well, maybe it was just a temporary storage place for the hay. Anyway, I was bound into the story by the ingenuity of the bird and the speed of its action. I didn't fully see what the plan was, and that ignited my curiosity even more. It made me feel excited for the unknown. Even in the busy stability of the city, the wild world of nature is active and alive. And I sort of marveled at the pure intentionality and drive of the tui. It knew what it was going on about. It wasn't waiting for approval from anyone, and it didn't give two hoots about the fact that I was watching it intently the whole time. It was all focus, purpose, action, and the instinct of a clear mission. All of that took place in 30 seconds on, the, on my way into the student soul base and it made me feel that the world is wide and alive. Creation is overflowing with energy and a strange mystery and there is a captivating power at work in every nook and cranny, if you have eyes to see it. This energetic tui or blackbird put me in touch for a short minute with the wild abundance of creation. And the wild abundance of creation is how I want to start my descriptors and my praise when I open up Romans, the letter to the Romans, the, the New Testament book which has been such a powerhouse influence upon the church and the world over the last 2,000 years. The wild abundance of creation is the sense I have as I read the first half of chapter 1. It flows out of every part. Paul, the writer of the letter, is alive with it. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he proclaims to the Roman church he's writing to back in the first century. Grace, the abundance and overflow of God's generous and hospitable love, be with you, soaking you like rejuvenating rain, liberating you from, for the full life that Jesus came to offer. And peace, shalom, the true rightness of how things ought to be. May it be like that with you. May your life be whole and well put together in right relationship with our loving Creator God. May your relationships be well and healthy and flourishing. May the peace of God be the reconciling power that's at work among you all for the sake of this world. Mystery and love, overflow and abundance. That's the baseline world that the Apostle Paul is living out of because of the message of grace that he has discovered in Jesus. There is a splendour and a majesty to this gospel proclamation 
which he is going to be diving into during the 16 chapters of this epistle or letter. And even just in the warm-ups and the greetings, you can sense this is the place from which he is writing. We start with grace, and eventually we end with glory, although there's some hard and challenging things to be said as he lays down the foundations of the good news that he has encountered in God. The thread throughout is that salvation life through Jesus is over and above your wildest dreams. His creation is alive with it. And if the creative power of God is at work sustaining the focused ingenuity of the Tui, how much more is God's gracious power ready to meet you in the challenge and potential of your own actual life? So much is the answer. And this is about the overflow of that salvation life. And so the gospel, the good news, this is the message that Paul comes bearing. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he writes, for it is the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation. That's what the gospel is. So when you hear someone mention the gospel or you read the New Testament and you're wondering, what is this gospel? What is this good news? What's so good about it? You can remember this. It is the power of God for salvation. Okay, so it's the power of God for salvation. But for who? For everyone who has faith. And this is a central part of the letter, the nature of faith. What actually is faith? Is it just blind belief or warm, fuzzy feelings? Well, in the Greek which this letter was written in, the word is hupistu. It means to have faith. In. It's not weak and abstract, it's directional. Faith in. The calibre of the one in whom you're putting your faith or your trust in is the point of it. Not the strength of your faith. The meaning of it is to entrust yourself to one who is trustworthy, to Christ. So the gospel is the power of God bringing about salvation for everyone who has faith in Christ. And Paul is a Jew. And the Jewish faith, as we can trace through the Old Testament, is a salvation faith. This is the faith of the people of God. In the midst of the world in travail, it is these unlikely slave tribes that God has sought to liberate and strengthen in the face of a hostile world. Salvation is of the Jews. It is to the Jewish people that God made the covenant promise. It is through the Jewish people that Yahweh has been at work bringing about salvation purposes. And God's salvation purposes go no less than absolutely worldwide. The Jews have been blessed so that they may be a blessing. And the scope of salvation is writ large from the outset. And Jesus comes on the scene, a Jew of the house of David, and he comes in fulfillment of the Jewish law. Jesus comes to bring about the overflow. All of that is a crucial backdrop. We can't understand Jesus without understanding the Jewish faith that he had. Nor can we understand the Apostle Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he describes himself in Philippians. Nor can we understand the early church, which emerged in the first instance as a Jewish movement. Which is why Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who has faith. For the Jew first, and then the Gentile. These are the two categories that we are dealing with. From a Jewish worldview, that's how to see it. The Jews, and then everyone else, the Gentiles. All are included. 
That's what that means. All are included in this message, the gospel. It's the universality of the gospel right there for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That's the particularity of the gospel as well right there. Salvation specifically emerges out of the grounded historical reality that God has been active and at work in the world through the Jewish people. In this gospel message, the universal is never separate from the particular. This is right there in the foundations of how our faith works, how the Christian faith works. It is the salvation power of God for the Jews as it has always been and it is the salvation power of God for the Gentiles. This is the wild, abundant overflow of blessing that has come from the Jewish people for the sake of the world. The next part of this is a question. How exactly does this salvation thing work? Paul writes that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. This is a, another big theme of the letter. We will get to that. This is still Paul's introduction to the letter as a whole. And in these two verses of 16, 17 and chapter 1, he's providing a summary, an overview of what he is about to dive into. In the meantime, there is something necessary here. That righteousness is to do with the very nature of who God is. You might say character. It's about something essential, something essentially God. Just like the bird I saw, you can give it characteristics. Maybe it's essentially resourceful or essentially mobile. We might say God is essentially righteous. The word righteousness, dekayuso has links to justice, and in particular, God's covenant justice, which puts the term in its proper context of the history of Israel and the Jewish faith, not only in our contemporary Western view of democracy and the courtroom that we're familiar with. This righteousness, this covenant justice, is not abstract, but it's relational. It has to do with reconciliation and our being brought back together with God. It comes from a baseline truth that humans and God belong together. And the righteousness we are hearing about is a righteousness that belongs to us and can be for us through Jesus. The instinct and drive of God's righteousness flows out of the essence of God's love and desire for relationship with you and with me. So the righteousness of God is revealed or unveiled and our taking possession of this righteousness has everything to do with living by faith. Okay, so now I want to get on with answering the question about salvation. Which question? I bet you know the question. I'm pretty sure the question about salvation is, what's the big deal with salvation? If we're talking about salvation, it means someone somewhere needs to be saved. Do you need to be saved? Do I need to be saved? And if so, what from? And it's at this point that we really start to get somewhere now. The, the letter is done with the introduction. The Apostle Paul's contention so far is that the salvation, of, the salvation promise of the gospel is a wild overflow. It's far greater and better than anything you dare to believe. God is for us. And to embrace that through faith changes everything. But you can't know how good salvation is unless you know what you're being saved from. How bad is the situation? And salvation isn't abstract. It always relates to actual lives. Like 
The boys at that soccer team who got stuck in the cave a few years back. For them, being saved had to do with being rescued. They were saved from dying in the cave, and eventually they got out. Salvation always takes on specific situations and lives. It's not just a pretty concept. So we have to know how bad a situation is, and that is called naming reality. In leadership books, they say how naming reality is one of the core tasks of a leader. We often live with our foot in the past or our head lost in the future, but to actually see and name things for how they are right here, right now, takes skill and sight and more than a fair bit of courage. Naming reality might look like, I need a nest for my children. So the bird sees the truth of their situation and goes about addressing it by gathering hay and building a nest and making their reality a little bit better. Naming reality might be, hey, my life is not going as well as it could be. Owning up to that and letting the full weight of it sink in might mean you are actually prepared to cancel the Netflix subscription and start doing the hard work of sharpening up your character or your skill set or working on some friendships. Naming reality almost always has both positive and negative parts to it. It usually opens up some new possibilities, but it also often exposes places of weakness and danger or hurt. But at least if things are out in the open, you can start to make progress on it. Actually, Romans chapter 1 is a really hard portion of Scripture. It says a lot of things about the human condition that are hard to hear, disagreeable, offensive, particularly the stuff about homosexuality, which has hurt a lot of people. has been weaponized in lots of cases, and I'll say a little bit about it as I go. The overall tenor of the rest of the chapter is that we are getting right down to the harsh reality of the human condition. Paul is naming reality as he sees it. If salvation is necessary, we need to know why. And by the time we are done with this, and it sort of morphs throughout into the next couple of chapters too, we will have no doubts that we definitely need to be saved. It's easy to be sheltered from our reality, but there's no doubt that our world is a mess. And every once in a while we come into confrontation with that on a big scale, like when there's a new war, when the pandemic first hit, when a disaster happens. Other times we experience it personally, relationally, Things fall to pieces. You get hurt badly and maybe intentionally by someone you love. You make a terrible mistake. Something horrific happens in your community. In those times we come face to face with the brutal reality of how things are. And Paul is taking us there. He's removing the blinders, removing the safety nets. He's stripping away our desire for tranquility and stability and he puts us on a confronting journey. His aim is to create space for the salvation power of the gospel to do work. And there's no two ways about it. Entering the school of salvation requires a pre-entry course in sin. <clears throat> Here's how he starts. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Are you awake yet? If that was the introduction to a feature film on Amazon Prime, you would be settling in for the ride right now. But there's a few words in here that if you're like me, you're already offended by. And so you might well be switching off 
Let me quickly debrief those. First, wrath. What a word. But hang on, how can God have wrath? Why would you start that argument with wrath? Isn't God love? And besides, wrath is such an old word and a weird word. The next one, ungodliness. Hey, keep your nose out. This is my own life. How dare you criticize what you don't know? And anyway, you are almost certainly a hypocrite, so back off. That's the connotation of that word godliness. And now the third one, wickedness. Well, this sounds like some religious crazy things going on. Wickedness. It's probably very into spiritual abuse to use that word. What makes you think you're able to make such a categorical judgment claim? Wickedness. How can you even say it? I feel like wild and angry just hearing you say it to me. Yeah, I get it. I know. Chill. So that kind of language, maybe it has caught you off guard. When you read the gospel, maybe it's caught you off guard. Well, I told you already, Paul is taking no prisoners here in chapter 1 of Romans. Have you ever had an experience of transformation that didn't rearrange you, that didn't challenge you? That disruption sort of comes with the territory. Remember, Paul is naming reality. Naming reality is difficult. Jesus himself named reality. And it pissed people off everywhere he went. And then he was crucified for it. The truth is that sometimes negative language has its place and it can point to things that positive language can't. Also remember that salvation is of the Jews. Jesus didn't emerge in a vacuum. God is not God in the abstract. In this language of Rome, in Romans 1, wicked, wrath, ungodliness, it's native to the Jewish hymn book. Eugene Peterson says it like this, he's a pastor. It's extremely significant that at the beginning of the Bible, God speaks a world of energy and matter into being. Light, moons, stars, earth, vegetation, man, woman, not love, virtue, faith, salvation, hope, judgment, although they eventually come. What he means is that the whole salvation narrative, the gospel, is rooted in the actual story of God's covenant with Israel. It can't be abstracted away from that. It's from the earth. And words like wrath, ungodliness, wickedness, they run in clean continuity with the rest of the biblical witness. The stories, the people, the place, the land. Paul is not treading new ground here. And I'm not saying that you have to like it. I'm just pointing out that if we take this gospel seriously, if we take Romans seriously, we have to take it as it comes to us, which is out of the ground of the Jewish faith experience. And the reality is that these words which sound so hard to us and offensive in our capitalist, consumerist, secular bubble, they really do significant work. Like, even though it may be hidden, we, we need these words. We need what they point to. They, they remain necessary. So if you can, let go of your offense or resistance to it. And I, I really mean that. Try to come with me. If you need to stop the video or stop the past and just get over it or work on it or do some thinking about it, please do. I'm not trying to offend you and I don't think you personally need to be offended by this stuff. And actually I'm just trying to get to the hinge point of this. Who is it that God is showing his anger to? The people who suppress the truth. Truth suppresses. People who through wickedness suppress the truth. Those who use injustice to suppress the truth. 
Those who cover over the truth through unrighteousness. Those words all mean the same. Already you can see there is a very specific target in mind here. And we are about to get a detailed exposition on it. For my part, and I suspect for you, we are all going to be grateful if those who suppress the truth through injustice get called out, confronted and dealt with. I think we're going to be happy when justice gets done. No one wants the alternative, not most people. This is pointing in the direction of how in terrible times and circumstances, ordinary people can start going off the deep end, beyond regular and ordinary mistakes which we all make, into greater acts of maliciousness, evil and oppression. Oppression. Addressing that as part of the salvation purpose. Addressing that is where Paul is going. So let's have a look. The first thing Paul says about those who suppress the truth through injustice or unrighteousness, shut God out. They block themselves from receiving the life and input that is the knowledge of God. Verse 19 and 20 say, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. What that means is that you can see the truth about God because it's baked into the design of everything we see. You see it like I did on the way here tonight and the dark clouds looming on the horizon that have a bright sunshine breaking through onto a small patch of a hill. It was beautiful. You see it in amazing people that you walk past at the supermarket. You see it in the birds crafting a nest. You can even sense it within yourself. There is a fundamental goodness to life, a deep beauty. It's there if you're willing to see it. But those who suppress the truth through wickedness and at the expense of others, shut themselves down to this awareness. Paul calls this becoming futile in their thinking. It's the darkening of their minds, a willingful darkening. This darkening doesn't come out accidentally, but through a refusal to see the goodness of life and intentionally blocking out God who is seeking through goodness and mercy and love to restore and revive this world. Okay, the next bit, this is the fearsome part. Verses 26 and 27 are used as an argument against homosexual relationships. Basically, that's not justified in my opinion, and here's why. The tenure of the letter is of wild, abundant overflow, salvation overflow. We start with grace and we end with glory. It's the gospel of good news. The gospel is not designed to be used as a weapon against people who are different. The next thing is, like I've established this particular part of it, Paul is working to what? Name reality, tear down the walls, to show things as they actually are. And to do this, in this section, he has one target. Who is it? Those who suppress the truth through injustice. Paul is taking aim at the malicious impulse that exists within humanity. He's now moving through how this rolls out. Once the truth suppressor gets on a roll, first it's their darkening minds, and then in this section it's their darkening desires, which is what he's trying to illustrate. To make his point, he starts from a Jewish point of view. Let's have a look at the Gentile sins. He addressed idolatry in verse 23. He now addresses homosexuality in verse 26 to 27. These are seen from the Jewish 
view as characteristically Gentile sins. And Paul is writing to the young church in Rome. Rome is the centre of the empire and it is known as a place of excess and in particular of sexual excess and abuse. There is no doubt that Paul is holding up aspects of Roman sexual culture for vicious critique and he is naming the reality of Gentile sin. But his point is not to make some kind of moralistic statement about the legitimacy or not of same-sex attraction or relationships and certainly not against committed, loving, long-term relationships. I don't see how that's really related to the flow of this portion of Scripture. He's shown that the Gentile world is guilty of sin. He's painted a picture to those receiving his letter of what it looks like when those who suppress the truth about God through injustice get on a roll. First, remember, it's a darkening of their minds and now a darkening of desires. And don't you worry, he's going to get to the Jews soon. He's dealt with the Gentiles and his own people are not exempt from this. That's coming in chapters 2 and 3. So now he goes to roll through the rest of the journey and it's heading downhill fast. From darkened minds to darkened desires to darkened action. Wickedness, evil, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness, rebelliousness. By the time we hit the end of chapter 1, it's sounding bleak. And if you're like me, you'll be squirming just a bit. Boastful? Darn. Foolish? Insolent? You might call this something like a universal picture of sin. Suppress the truth about God and things start going bad. That's the picture that Paul is painting. There, there is a worldwide endemic and it's called sin. People begin to slide down the deep slope towards evil and it's like an avalanche of pain and darkness follows. And that, my friends, is a job well done for the Apostle Paul. Because remember what we're trying to do here. We're asking the question, what is the point of salvation? From what do we need to be saved from? And the answer to the question, Paul says, speaking to Jews and Gentiles, to do it, he names reality. For example, if you fall over and have a, an infected wound on, wound on your knee, a bad one, but you pretend like it's not there, it isn't going to get better. Naming reality, in other words, I have a wounded knee and it's infected, is the first thing you have to do. An acknowledgement that then leads down the path towards healing. That's what naming reality does. Naming reality does that in Romans chapter 1. Let's get clear on what this world is like, he's saying. Let's have a look around and see how rough it actually is. Let's see what it is like when hands and hearts and minds all experience the darkening of sin. And I'm not afraid of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And so this is an invitation to faith, to recognise reality for how it is in your life and the lives of your people around you. To look for God, to pay attention to the fundamental goodness and beauty that's present in this world, because we don't want to be people who suppress the truth. We want to be people who are open to the truth of God, which is abundantly available. The truth of God, which is all around us and within us, for the kingdom is closer than you know. Jesus is right here. Grace and peace be with you. Grace and peace in abundance 
May you open yourself to the life of faith. Open yourself to the life of God that is present in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not be afraid to face up to the struggle, the darkness, the challenge of facing reality, naming reality. Look around, look by starting at your own life. None of this is an invitation to judgment or to judging other people. This is an invitation to recognizing what's real in you. What's real in you. And the reality is that what's real in me and you and us is often that there's a brokenness, that there's a sadness, that there's a hurt, that there's a pain, and that there's things that we do and think and everything that just isn't that great. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I hear of salvation, I feel relieved. I feel happy. I feel thankful because I'm, I'm okay, but I could do with being saved. I pray that you would come to know the love of Jesus. And I'll see you next time. I'm going to do chapter two, and I'm going to do chapter three, and I'm going to do chapter four all the way. <laughs>